Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. On the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben DiBiase, sitting in for Ben Broatmarkle. Coming up on the program, we'll talk with professors and students at the University of Central Florida who traveled to France as part of the Veterans Legacy Program. People that we've been researching and writing about, seeing where they actually are, uh, was pretty intense. We'll sit down with Michael Boonstra and talk about research into a local archive concerning the Apollo 11 mission. We have a great photo collection, some official NASA photographs, pamphlets, original patches from the various missions. And we'll discuss African-American travel guides known as Green Books. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. Although begun in 1914, it was not until 1917, after Germany continued their unrestricted submarine warfare, that the United States entered the First World War and quickly worked to furnish the necessary soldiers, sailors, and supplies to help end the stalemate. Today, the U.S. involvement in World War I is often seen as little more than a footnote in a much broader conflict, or simply a foreshadowing of events to come. But the sacrifices made by Americans at home and abroad had a tremendous impact on the lives of those living in Florida a century ago. Barbara Gannon, Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida and lead investigator for the UCF Veterans Legacy Program, has studied the role of Florida during the conflict. Well, remember, Florida's a very small state, and it's an agricultural state. Um, It has about 750,000 people, which isn't very large. You know, you have a Pennsylvania which has millions in New York, so it's not going to play as large a role from the point of either industry or men who um, enlist. I mean, it's actually fairly interesting in that there are people who enlist and there's also a draft. And the draft wasn't really because people wouldn't go, but we're going to have to go from an army of 150,000 and eventually to one of 4 million. And they really need to take people in, in batches. So Florida will provide about the same percentage of other states. 43,000 Floridians will serve. 13,000 of those are African-Americans. So it's experience from the point of view of being a smaller state, not having as many people serve, is one way you can look at Florida. But you can also look at its important contributions, such as, well, of course, agriculture. But this was, in many ways, the state was the birthplace of modern aviation for all the services, which is very important. And it also had a very large base in Jacksonville, Camp Joe E. Johnston, which became the primary quartermaster training facility. It soon became apparent that the need to train pilots and flight crews was paramount. Florida's climate and access to water meant that training could be accomplished year-round. So you had Naval Air Station Pensacola, which was going to train Navy pilots 
But once the war came, a lot of other facilities opened up. In Miami, Curtis, who was a very well-known aircraft uh, manufacturer, had a training facility, and it had trained civilian pilots. When the war came, the government contracted it, and it trained all the services, Army, Navy, and Marines. And the Marine part of the story is very important. They also, the Army built in DeSoto County, uh, Carlstrom and Dorfield, to train its pilots. So when the war came, people started thinking about planes in other ways. Well, first, of course, you have to train your basic pilot, which is hard in those days because there aren't a lot of people who are pilots to train other people to be pilots. So that's in a very important role. But another thing that will happen is they start thinking in terms of bombing and using aircraft for that. So Miami trained a Marine unit in bombing tactics that actually went overseas and was among the first aircraft that bombed the enemy. So if you see all of the aircraft installations in Florida, in many ways, particularly for the Marines, this is the birthplace of modern aviation, military and naval aviation. The impact of the war effort on Florida's cities, including Jacksonville and Pensacola, were enormous. But there were also smaller communities who felt the effects of the war at home. The U.S. Coast Guard cutter Tampa, a small patrol cutter, was sunk in September of 1918 while on convoy duty off the coast of England, taking all hands aboard, including many Floridians. It was assigned and ported in Tampa, and also it visited the Gasparilla Festival, and it was very tied to the city of Tampa. When the war came, like all Coast Guard ships, it became mobilized, and it actually became part of the Navy as a anti-submarine vessel. And it did very well. It did very well until a submarine sank it. And there were a lot of Floridians aboard. There were a lot of young Floridians aboard. There was one set of brothers, the Belvins, who died together. There were lots of sets of brothers on the ship. And this was actually one of the largest losses of lives for Florida, but actually the largest for the Coast Guard during the war. In 2018, the Tampa Bay History Center dedicated a mural in memory of the U.S. Coast Guard cutter Tampa's crew and the sacrifices they made. For many Americans, the First World War is far removed from their daily lives. But in France, that's a different story. UCF graduate student Marie Aurie recalls the way French society remembers the legacy of American service members who fought and died on their soil. World War I is so present everywhere in France that I couldn't, I, I was shocked to find that um, most Americans didn't know about it or didn't realize that some Americans died on those battlefields. The Veterans Legacy Program aims to bridge the gap between veterans and the public. It is an educational outreach initiative of the National Cemetery Administration to memorialize our nation's veterans through preserving their stories of service and sacrifice. The National Cemetery Administration has collaborated with universities to help fulfill that mission in a variety of ways. One of the principal investigators at UCF is Amelia Lyons. The National Cemetery Administration, which is one of the three parts of the VA, of the Department of Veterans Affairs, approached us, actually, 
And I take great pride in that because I think the reason that when the um, National Cemetery Administration launched the Veterans Legacy Program, their staff was looking for schools that could do a project like this. And um, we had a number of things that demonstrated that we had the capacity and that we were doing innovative work and we were doing digital humanities already. We had the Veterans History Project, which is a partnership with the Library of Congress, and we've done well over 600 interviews with veterans um, under the leadership of my colleague, Barbara Gannon. I am proud to say that I was on the ground floor of that project as well, and the students who are in my classes now that are doing Veterans Legacy Program, we're doing that in 2009, 2010. I'm always looking for something innovative um, in my classes to help students learn in new ways. And so in addition to that, of course, we have Riches, uh, which is this massive digital archive for uh, the history of Central Florida. And I had been doing a project similar to this um, that was unfunded, that was my students were writing biographies of World War II veterans who were buried at Apinal, which is one of several American cemeteries, in, in this case in eastern France. And so I knew uh, how to do this and, and I had been doing it. And so I think the combination of these things as well as the, the Digital Humanities Center where we're sitting right now um, and the support we have there, especially with Dr. Amy Giroux who works in that center and who works her own researches in cemetery history, um, made us a really great candidate. And so I think it's very safe to say that we are the poster child or the, the standout institution doing the Veterans Legacy Program in the U.S. Uh, it started with three schools. As of 2018, it was nine schools. For 2019, I'm not sure how many schools, if they've done any more expanding, um, but it's around the country. Most Americans are familiar with or may have even visited a national cemetery and can understand the tangible and visible care needed to maintain these sacred places. The Veterans Legacy Program takes this idea of cemetery preservation a step further. The Veterans Legacy Program is about extending that and connecting the community to the cemetery as a site. And so the requirements really of the Veterans Legacy Program that come to us from, from the VA are to take faculty and students at the university and to do research in a number of forms and around the country they're doing it differently and we're doing it in a number of innovative ways here at UCF as well to bring those, the faculty and the students together to do research about veterans and then to make that publicly available and most specifically that becomes publicly available as K-12 resources as lesson plans as assignments we have about two dozen assignments and they range from kindergarten to 12th grade and I've seen them in action in the classroom. I've seen the kindergarten ones in action. I've had class teachers send me photographs of essays students have written about veterans that have hung on the walls uh, in their schools. And they're really rather amazing and astounding to, to see it then make it that far. We are also required as part of, of the work that we do to take students, K-12 students, into a cemetery each year. Uh, it's what we call a day of learning. It's essentially a field trip. And we've gone both to Florida National Cemetery, which is out in Bushnell, and to St. Augustine National Cemetery and done that work with students. Some of the cemeteries they visited included American cemeteries in France. Their research has centered on individuals buried in those places. And this experience had a very personal effect on UCF graduate student and U.S. Army veteran Walter Napier. My main task, I suppose, was to learn about the Musargon. 
and I became extremely fascinated by this conflict because it's the largest land battle the U.S. Army's ever fought, and nobody knows about it. I was an Army veteran, I'm a historian, and I had, I had heard about it, but it was very passing, you know. And when I started digging into it, it, it started fascinating me what all went on and why don't we remember this, and it triggered my interest in memory, which I was already into. So while we were over um, in France, I had the opportunity to go to Bella Wood, the Eyes Marne Cemetery, uh, Musargon Cemetery, and um, Dr. Lyons and I and some of the other team members would have talks. I decided that this was something that matters. I was talking about something that's remembered wrong. The United States didn't do much in World War I. And that fact-finding mission and trying to set the record straight kind of hit off some interest, but because of it being closer to um, you know, modern contemporary times, this is something we can reach out and touch. And the same for Marine Corps veteran Jim Stoddard, who'd heard about the Battle of Bella Wood while he was still a recruit in 2003. It was really, really fascinating to see Bella Wood firsthand, see the Meuse Argonne firsthand, and then, of course, the cemeteries that sit um, among those battlefields and um, all the countless headstones that, that lie there and uh, the names and, and all that, that people that we've been researching and writing about, seeing where they actually are uh, was pretty, pretty intense. The stories of the experiences of individual soldiers and Marines who fought in France help connect people to these events that happened a century ago. Holmes County resident Luther Pilcher joined the Marine Corps before the U.S. became involved in World War I and ended up serving in France. The first major engagement that the Marines were involved in uh, would have been Bella Wood between June 6th and June 26th, the largest engagement the Marines had up to that time. In fact, uh, June 6th, there was over a thousand Marines killed on that opening day of the battle, which was um, more Marines were killed that day than the previous um, 147 or so years of the Marine Corps' existence. Um, so a very bloody day in Marine Corps history. Pilcher, um, he died on that day uh, in that initial assault into the wood to remove the Germans um, from that area. And uh, he, like many other Marines, fell in the process of leaving their secured wooded area and marching across about 400 yards of wheat fields to assault the wood there, and many Marines, including Pilcher, were, were cut down uh, in that initial assault. One of the things that struck me, in addition to uh, seeing these cemeteries and being at these battlefields, is, and this, I, didn't, I expected to feel that. What I didn't expect was how well, not only World War I is remembered by the French, but how well the American involvement in that war is remembered by the French, and then comparing that to how America remembers it. From the United States perspective, World War I is, is a, a footnote or a prelude to the sequel, which is World War II. That's not the case in France. You know, you know you went to a new town, new village in France because you saw another World War I monument. Um, that, they're marked all around there. Every, every village has one. I mean, we saw uh, posters that advertised temporary exhibits that focus solely on the American involvement in the war. And it's um, really humbling to, to see something like that in, in a museum that's dealing with one of the most murderous battles of French history, certainly in modern French history. Many stories of heroism in combat were uncovered, including the life and death of Edward C. de Saussure, an army soldier and Jacksonville native who fought in the Meuse-Argonne Offensive. On the Meuse-Argonne sector, he actually helped uh, save the uh, lost battalion. He was part of the, the one who rescued the lost battalion. 
and in, in the start of the second phase of the Mazargan, um, he got injured, but uh, he decided to remove his tag and to go back to the fight. And as he was going back, he was struck by an artillery and died on, on the spot. So his legacy, um, he was rewarded with the um, Distinguished uh, Service Crest. The work of the Veterans Legacy Program participants is not only bridging that gap between the past and the present, but as Walter Napier explains, it also transforms the way we understand and interact with history. One of the beauties of this program is that whether it's an undergrad or a graduate student, um, they're really trying to uh, get you to that next step to where it's not just sitting in the classroom anymore, it's actually reaching out and touching that history. The Veterans Legacy Program is giving voice to those who served their country and even made the ultimate sacrifice, but whose contributions have begun to slip from the American consciousness. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben DiBiase. Visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org to listen to archived editions of this program, watch our television series, Florida Frontiers, subscribe to our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. The Brevard County Historical Commission was established by ordinance in the 1970s to collect, arrange, record, and preserve historical materials and is comprised of both professional and lay historians. Joining us now is Michael Boonstra, archivist for the Brevard County Historical Commission and genealogist at the Catherine Schweinsberg Rood Central Library in Cocoa. Michael, the Historical Commission works to preserve the county's history, which is actually some of the oldest in the state, is that right? Oh, absolutely, Ben. Probably a lot of people will be familiar or have heard of uh, our famous archaeology discovery that we had here in the Titusville area, the Windover Digs, which is some of our most ancient history or ancient Floridians. Uh, those are really well known for the well-preserved remains that were there in the ponds, in the bog that the bodies had been preserved with the skulls intact and the brains that yielded some very interesting information and DNA results from from that discovery. We have our British colonial period that's represented here in the form of the Elliott Plantation on North Merritt Island, which is a great example from that period with remains of slave cabins and waterways still preserved there. We have our citrus history, of course, here, which really opened up after the settlement here in the Civil War, our famous Indian River fruit that we became known all over the world for. And, of course, down into our World War II history with our Banana River Naval Air Station, all the men that came here and trained for flight school, those type of things that brought people to the area. And that just kind of led directly into the space program we're so well known for today. 
Now, Michael, July 2019 marks the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 11 mission, which is internationally significant, and researchers are are traveling the globe trying to collect material and tell the story of of not only the Apollo 11 mission, but the programs leading up to the landing on the moon. How has the Brevard County Historical Commission been involved in helping to facilitate that research? Yeah, you're right, Ben. We've had a lot of requests from from all over the world and and locally uh, to support people's research in those areas. We have a great uh, photo collection that that goes back to that time period, some official NASA photographs, pamphlets, original patches from the various missions. A lot of the projects that people are doing are focusing on a really interesting angle, I think, and that they're asking more about the area and people's lives, how they were affected, how they actually lived here, where they shopped, where they uh, ate, the entertainment that they had, the homes that they lived in that were built at that time. So they're focusing less on the actual mission and the fame of the astronauts, sort of what happened in that, with more of how it affected our local area, the people that lived here, and the people that came here to work in that program. Can you tell us some specific examples of the types of materials that uh, people are are traveling here to Brevard County to uh, research in your archive? Sure, Ben. We've actually had um, people from all over the world. We've had a crew here, a French crew, uh, was doing a documentary for the Discovery Channel that was very interested in finding out about the local lives of people at that time, for instance, where they shopped, the influx of teachers in our area. There weren't enough teachers to provide the, all the elementary schools that were that were going up at that time. Our living conditions, there wasn't even enough housing here for people, the trailer parks uh, that were at that time. Uh, my father even told me he was here in this early period about people sleeping in concrete pipes beside the road because there actually was no place to stay or sleep. So those are some of the interesting questions that we've been getting. Now, Michael, uh, having grown up in Brevard County yourself, um, how has your understanding of the the impact of national and international events and their effect on local history changed over time? I think it's definitely changed. I think it's changed for a lot of us that grew up here. I think it was just a part of life as it would be for for anybody going through something like that. And, And you didn't see yourself in such a national worldview, I think. Uh, It was just something that was happening out your window. And now you see that the whole world is interested in what you sort of lived and saw. And it definitely brings a new appreciation to that aspect of it. And you definitely want to share that with people then and kind of let them know about the excitement and the energy that was here and what was going on so that they can understand that part of it as well. Great, Michael. Thanks so much for sitting down with us today. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Michael Boonstra is archivist for the Brevard County Historical Commission and genealogist at the Catherine Schweinsberg Rood Central Library in Coco. This is Florida Frontiers. African Americans traveling in Florida used printed guides called Green Books. Holly Baker is Public History Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and manager of the Brevard Museum of History and Natural Science, and has this report. 
Certainly Jim Crow made travel and accommodations more difficult. I have an example. Jack and Rachel Robinson left Southern California for the Dodgers training camp at Daytona Beach, Florida. They were going to fly from Southern California via New Orleans and Pensacola. They left on February 28th and they were to be there on March 1st. They were delayed for 12 hours once they got to New Orleans. The airline would not let them leave. The idea was that there were other white passengers that were able to bump them. They also weren't able to eat because the airport was segregated. Fortunately, Jack Robinson's mother, Mally Robinson, had made a shoebox full of boiled eggs and fried chicken for them. And so they did have that. Finally, they got to Pensacola and once again, they couldn't eat in the airport. So they had to take a bus and they had to sit in the back and they took the bus from Pensacola to Daytona and they finally got there. So they were late, but they did make it. That was historian Dr. Fawn Gordon talking about the difficulties faced by baseball legend Jackie Robinson and his wife, Rachel as they traveled to Daytona Beach, Florida in 1946 for his first spring training with the minor league baseball team, the Montreal Royals. The next year, Jackie Robinson became the first African-American major league baseball player when he joined the Brooklyn Dodgers. Jackie and Rachel Robinson's journey from Los Angeles to Daytona Beach shows just how challenging it was for African-Americans to travel during segregation. Their experience also helps to explain why African-American travel guides called Green Books became popular during this time. Dr. Gordon has more about Green Books. The first Green Book was published in 1936. It was the brainchild of Victor Hugo Green, who was a postal worker in New York. And initially, that first year, 1936, the Green Book was only for local in New York City, for those places for blacks who were visiting or who lived there but wanted to know safely where they could eat and do other things. And so in 1937, the Green Book became national in scope, and it remained so until the last one was published in 1967. The Green Book's motto, printed on the cover, read, Carry your Green Book with you. You may need it. Jackie Robinson later recalled that once he arrived in Daytona Beach, he continued to have issues finding accommodations and food. He could not stay in the same hotel or eat in the same restaurants as his white teammates. Many African Americans traveled with Green Books in order to avoid the sort of issues Jackie Robinson and his wife faced on their trip to Daytona Beach. As Dr. Gordon explains, Green Books enabled black travelers to find places where they could feel welcome and safe. If you didn't have the Green Book, then you wouldn't know where you could eat or where you could have overnight accommodations or you couldn't find nightclubs or taverns or garages or any of those things that you need when you're traveling in the country. So the Green Book provided not only listings for overnight accommodations and restaurants, but for barbershops and beauty shops and tourist homes, even if there wasn't a motel that was black-owned that would accommodate them. If you needed a tailor or whatever you might need, it wasn't just overnight and dining, but it was about all the things that you might need at any time. And the Green Book provided that. It was about black businesses and the patronage, certainly, of black customers. The Green Books stopped publication in the 1960s. Dr. Gordon tells us more about the end of Green Books. In 1967, I think that was the last year that it was published, but that was because the Civil Rights Act of 1964 had been passed. And 
Even before then, as early as the 1940s, Victor Green had always written that one day he hoped that the Green Book would not be necessary anymore. But of course now we know that there is niche travel, and so there might be a need for a resurgence of the Green Book simply from the standpoint of wanting to accommodate black travelers. Dr. Gordon explains why it is important to remember and preserve Green Books. We like these historic artifacts. And we don't want to forget what Jim Crow modernity was, what it looked like in that historical moment. For Florida Frontiers, I am Holly Baker. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here next week. Until then, you can join us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org. Production assistance for this week's program comes from Holly Baker and Jerry Klein. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben DiBiase, sitting in for Ben Broatmarkle. Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State, Division of Historical Resources, and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.